Well, good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. I am glad you've joined us. We've come together again to pray and to read God's Word and to hopefully model through doing this how you can and should do your family devotions, personal devotions. Uh, Hopefully one of the things that you've picked up through these Bible talks is the way in which reading God's Word is not uh, rocket science. It's not the sort of thing where you need a professional education in to get something out of it. Uh, If you just read with basic reading comprehension skills and follow along and think about how does this apply to my life, you can have an incredible fruitful, edifying time in God's Word. Really, in a way, what we're doing here is sort of modeling uh, the application of a Protestant belief uh, about the Bible. Uh, One of the things that has historically distinguished Protestants from Catholics is that Protestants believe that those things in Scripture that are essential for salvation and godliness are clear. Uh, They can be easily understood. Now, obviously, not everything in the Bible is equally uh, understandable. I mean, you could some of the prophecies in Ezekiel and so forth that are really difficult to understand. But those things that are essential for salvation and for godliness are clear in Scripture. Protestants have historically believed that, whereas Roman Catholics have said, no, that's not the case. The Bible is almost like a a secret code book and that you need the secret code decoder ring of the Pope and the magisterium to get the Bible. Uh, That's one of the big things that's distinguished Catholics from Protestants. Um, So if we really do believe that the Bible is clear on those things that are essential for salvation and godliness, we don't need to be, uh, you know, using weird techniques and, you know, digging really, really deep into obscure Greek and Hebrew words. Now, certainly sometimes that can be beneficial. I took a lot of Greek and Hebrew in college and seminary and find it helpful from time to time. But again, if we really do believe that the Bible is clear, that should impact the way in which we read it and study it. And again, I'm trying to model that for you in these talks. Uh, I am afraid that a lot of conservative evangelical Protestants are basically Roman Catholics in their practice when it comes to the Bible. I've encountered a lot of Christians who think, oh, I could never deal with the pure text of Scripture. I need like a workbook that explains everything, or I need a, a book that lays it all out. Again, teachers can be helpful, workbooks can be helpful, but I totally don't think that they are absolutely essential in the sense that if you've got, you know, a a halfway average intelligence, and if you've learned how to read with reading comprehension, and if you've got the indwelling Holy Spirit who can illuminate your mind, you can have an incredibly rich, edifying, convicting, life-transforming time in God's Word, even if you never crack open a workbook or anything like that. I hope I'm making sense here. I'm not trying to criticize or say that workbooks and human teachers are totally irrelevant. Certainly they are helpful. Um, But at the same time, if God's Word is clear on those matters of salvation and godly living, any, any ordinary Christian ought to be able to have a very fruitful time just reading it and thinking through what it means and what it says. And again, that's one of the goals of this uh, regular time, to not only persuade you that this is true, but model for you how you might have an edifying time in God's Word yourself. Um, I give away devotionals and Christian books all the time, and I'm delighted when I hear that people benefit from them. Um, but I would love it even more if people told me, you know what I really loved? I loved reading the Gospel of John the other night. Or I really had a wonderful time reading Romans 5 the other night. I'd love to hear more of that, uh, even though I do obviously give away lots of Christian books and devotionals and that, that sort of thing. Well, anyway, we come here to Ephesians 4. Let me pray, and we'll dig into God's Word. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have spoken to us. Lord, it's such a 
a pure gift that you would give us your word. We know that you were not obligated to do so. You were not required by some sort of external law to give us your word. But because you're loving, because you desire a relationship with us, because you're a personal God, you have spoken in your word and have given us so much, we thank you for that. We thank you for the book of Ephesians and for the opportunity we've had to study it these last several months. We do pray that you would help us now Help us to read with comprehension. Help us to reflect on what it means and how it relates to our lives. Please work by your Holy Spirit. Illuminate my mind as I read. Illuminate the minds of those who are hearing and following along right now. And please give us a very fruitful, edifying time in your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, today I'd like to cover a little bit more uh, territory than we typically do. If you've been paying attention to these studies the last couple of months, uh, I've been going very, very slow, like a verse or even a half a verse at a week. Uh, that's not wrong. There's nothing nothing you know, sinful about that. But, you know, there's more to the Bible than just Ephesians. And additionally, what we're going to be talking about today, you, you really kind of have to get the whole passage as a whole for it to make sense. We're going to be talking about how Christians change and grow, issues of putting sin to death, culture cultivating godly habits, and to really make my point, I want to cover more than just one or two verses. So follow along, if you would, as we read Ephesians 4, 20 through 32. And I'm going to try my best to get through all of this today. Ephesians 4, 20 through 32. Paul writes this, That is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil." Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, just to quickly set this passage in context, like we talked about last week, it's interesting the metaphors that Paul uses in verses 19 and 20 for how you become a Christian. Uh, he doesn't use the metaphor of a mystical experience, you know, meeting God on a mountaintop. He doesn't describe it in deeply emotional terms. He talks about learning Christ, hearing the gospel. If you want more on that, go back and listen to last week's talk. But it's very interesting, and I think that has a lot to teach us about how we become Christians. It's a process that begins in the mind, learning about Jesus, learning about the gospel, but then we embrace that with faith. Now, keep in mind that what we're going to be talking about today is addressed to Christians. This passage is not addressed to those who are dead in sin, those alienated from God, those without the Holy Spirit. 
This is talking to those who have been born again, have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, have been indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind. Otherwise, we'll turn this passage into a bunch of legalistic rules that non-Christians are supposed to follow as opposed to the way of holiness for those who have been born again. Please keep that in detail in mind. And to check that, look just uh, look at verses 19 and 20. But you'll notice, what does Paul say to these folks who are Christians? What are they now to do? Well, they're to put off the old man and put on the new man. They're to put off this old series of habits and life patterns that characterized their lives before they came to Jesus and put on a whole new set of life patterns that are, that are now really the life of Jesus. They're to adopt those and to cultivate those now that they have come to faith in Jesus. Now, many things that we could say about that. First, though, we need to recognize that this passage, along with really the entire Bible, recognizes that true Christians will have an ongoing struggle with sin. Uh, I realize that's a very simple idea, but it has profound implications for the Christian life, for how do we know we're a Christian, for growing as a Christian. True Christians will still sin, and sin a lot, and sin very seriously. Now, saying that, that is... That, that in no way excuses sin or minimizes sin. You know, don't hear me in any way saying that sin is okay. Sin in the life of a believer is always bad. It dishonors God. It destroys my life. It hurts my family members. It hurts my church. It hurts my community and my society. So don't in any way hear me saying that sin's okay, that it's not a big deal, that you could ignore it. We're simply acknowledging a fact of life that true Christians who have been truly converted indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. They still have a lot of sin in their lives that they need to put to death, um, and, and that's just the reality of it. You know, it's sort of like this. Recognizing that people who are alive get sick does not mean that sickness is okay or no big deal or, you know, that I can just, you know, go around getting sick and it's, it's not going to have consequences. Obviously, nobody wants to get sick. We want to avoid it. We want to take medicines and vitamins and that sort of thing to, to do what we can to minimize sickness. And yet it's just the simple fact of life that living people get sick from time to time and some of us more so than others so also when we say that true christians will struggle with sin a lot it's not in any way excusing sin or saying that sin's okay it's simply recognizing a fact of life that in this world where you know jesus hasn't come again yet and you know we're not in the new creation yet true christians are still going to sin and struggle with sin severely uh, recognizing that can make all the difference in your Christian life because what that means is that I fight sin not in order to become a Christian, but I fight sin because I am a Christian. I fight sin not in order to become justified, but because I have been justified. I was justified that second I trusted in Jesus, and that then provides me with the fuel to fight sin. You follow me? Now, another thing to keep in mind, Paul says in verses 22 and 23, put off your old self. Now what's that? Now in context, that's sort of the entire summary of who you were before you came to Jesus. All your sinful habits, your sinful attitudes, your sinful beliefs, your sinful goals in life, all of that is to be put to death and you're to cultivate an entirely new way of thinking, habits, convictions, uh, and this is a process that's going to take you the rest of your Christian life. You know, don't think I become a Christian on Tuesday and then I, I've totally put on the new self by Friday or something like that. No, this is something that's going to take you the rest of your Christian life. Um, and it's, it's something that's uh, not always easy and it's not always going to be a smooth upward trajectory. 
you know, it's going to be like ups and downs and ups and downs. Now, when you look at the entirety of the Christian life, there's going to be an upward uh, trajectory, but, you know, some days you're taking two steps back. Some days you take two steps forward. Some days it's one step back. Other days it's three. You know, it's sort of like this Richter scale type line, but by the grace of God, over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, there is a gradual conformity more and more to the image of God's Son. And I'd encourage you to look at, look at your life this way. Uh, if you ever come to visit my house and see my garage, you would see that it's a complete disaster. It, it's actually quite shameful. Uh, truth be told, when I open my garage door, I'm hoping that none of my neighbors are walking down the street because they'll see toys everywhere, bikes everywhere, Christmas decorations everywhere. It, it's really kind of embarrassing, and I ought to go uh, address it this, this evening or something like that. Um, imagine your life like that the second you come to Christ. Okay, the second you trust in Jesus, your life is really kind of a mess, filled with all sorts of nonsense and messed up thinking patterns and convictions and worldview. It's all, it's all a mess. The next 75 years of your Christian life is going to be sort of rearranging that garage, getting rid of the junk, putting things where they belong, uh, you know, putting things in there that really ought to be in there and not laying out in the yard. And that's going to take you a long, long time, and yet that's what the Christian life is. I'm progressively putting off the old man. I'm progressively cleaning out and rearranging my garage and replacing that with the life of Jesus, with the habits of Jesus that ought to be there. But it's going to be a long, long process. Now, in the particular passage here, Paul gives us several instances of what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new self. These are here in verses 25 through 32. And as we read this, did you notice uh, several things that were to put off and several things that were to put on? For instance, in verse 25, put away falsehood. You know, that's kind of like that rotten, soggy uh, cardboard box in your garage. You pitch that out. But notice what he does. He says you don't merely pitch that out, but what do you do? You replace that with speaking the truth to his neighbor. Same thing, verse 26. Don't be angry. or Actually, be angry and don't sin. We could talk about that for a while if we had time. There is a place for righteous indignation. Uh, there are instances where it's actually good and holy to be angry. But truth be told, nine times out of ten, most of our anger is not righteous indignation. It's just frustration because we're not getting what we want. So you put that off. And interestingly, verse 27, you don't give opportunity to the devil. But you replace that with what? Patience. Uh, slowness to anger. We've got another one, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. So again, you, you push that out of your life, but instead, what do you replace that with? Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Now, hopefully you're seeing something here that's vital to understand for the Christian life. We replace godly habits with the corresponding, pardon me, we replace sinful habits with the corresponding godly habit. You know, you never fight sin in sort of a vacuum. You never just put lying to death. You cultivate truth-telling. You never just put laziness to death. You actively cultivate hard work. And this is the way that it works in every area of life. You don't just fight, say, uh, unkindness. You have to replace that with cultivating kindness. 
Now, all of us have different sin issues. I mean, the sin issues that uh, you struggle with are going to be different from the sin issues that I struggle with. And that's the same thing for, you know, Christians all around the world. For whatever reason, you know, due to upbringing, due to culture, due to uh, maybe psychological factors, we have different sin issues. And the sins that beset you don't necessarily beset me and vice versa. But whatever the sins are that drag you down, that convict you, that bring you to shame, make you feel guilty, that are corrupting your life... Don't only identify that sin and commit to fighting against it. Identify the corresponding godly habit to cultivate. And as you pursue that corresponding godly habit, what that will do is sort of push the sinful habit more and more out of your life. You know, the illustration is, uh, how does it go? You know, say you've got this container and I want to get the air out of it. What's the best way to get the air out of it? You know, I could try to suck it out with a vacuum, or I could fill it up with sand, and by filling it up with sand, that pushes the air out. You see what I'm saying? Similarly, in your life, you've got these sin habits. You know, again, when you come to Jesus, you've got a lot of sin habits. How am I going to get those gradually out of my life? I'm going to get those gradually out of my life largely by pursuing the corresponding godly habit, and as that increasingly characterizes my life, it pushes the sin habit out. You follow me? Now, what would this look like practically? Uh, how can I practically fight a particular sin and cultivate the corresponding godly trait? Well, let's just pick one of these. Uh, let's, let's say it's deception, you know, because Paul says in, where did it go? 25, you know, put away falsehood and speak truth. Uh, I'm going to try and lay out here a framework that you could use for every sinful habit and corresponding godly habit. I'm just going to use speaking truth and, you know, the, the falsehood one as an illustration. So again, think, what's my sinful habit? What's the corresponding godly habit? But then this is the approach I'd encourage you to follow. Say I struggle with lying a lot. My first point of counsel to you would be realize how evil that sin is. Uh, one of our common tendencies in the flesh is to minimize the evil of sin in a way this is sort of a defense mechanism you know if we really got how sin how evil sin was it would devastate us so begin there by pondering how evil this sin is and how do i do that well think of jesus and the cross is this a sin that was so evil that it required the blood of god incarnate to pay for it is this a sin that's so evil, if it's the only sin I ever committed, I would go to hell eternally? Is this a sin that's so evil, one instance of this sin would damn the entire world? As you think on these thoughts, you come to realize, man, this sin is serious. This is not a light matter. You know, this is not sort of like, do I want chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream? No, this is a deeply serious problem that i must address it's the sin for which jesus bled on the cross so begin there cultivate your hatred for your sin but then think on the way in which jesus did die for this sin if you're a believer in jesus jesus paid for this sin two thousand years ago so while yes it is evil jesus gladly died to pay for it god loves you as a father even though you commit this sin so you've kind of got to begin there with those two corresponding facets that it's incredibly evil destructive and yet jesus gladly died to pay for it and if your hope is in jesus god is smiling upon you even though this sin is still uh, evident in your life so that's where you begin and if you don't begin there again you, you can pretty quickly get into legalism and pride and despair you, you kind of got to re remind yourself of the gospel all the time my sin is incredibly evil deserves the the wrath of god eternally and yet 
God has loved me in Jesus and washed me of this sin. It was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Begin there. What then are my next practical steps? Well, if it's the sin of lying, I would exhort you to every single time, go to the person to whom you lied, confess that sin, and ask for forgiveness. Uh, Realize that God uses this in a really interesting way. The sort of embarrassment of having to confess a sin can serve to motivate you big time to hate that sin. I remember distinctly having to do this in college. Truth be told, I used to struggle with deception quite a bit. Uh, I would tell stories uh, designed to impress people with my greatness. And oftentimes they were just more like exaggerations. They were kind of fish stories. You know, I wasn't making stuff up totally out of thin air. But at the same time, they were still lies. And I remember back in college, I think it was my second year of college, I, the, the Lord had really worked in my life, and I got serious about walking with the Lord, and I wanted to grow and change and repent of sin. And I came to the realization that I struggled with sinful exaggeration, uh, not just you know saying I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, but you know exaggerating to the point where it really was a lie. And I did this to a pretty girl that I liked in college. Now. You know, just between you and me, this was not my wife. This was before I met my wife, and we hadn't been dating or anything like that. But, you know, there are other pretty girls in the world. So, you know, I I liked this girl, and I told her this big exaggeration. And I felt incredibly convicted. I was like, man, that that was wrong. I should not have done that. I confessed it to God. Lord, please forgive me for Jesus' sake for that sin. But I knew that I needed to go to that girl and ask her for forgiveness for lying to her. And I gotta tell you, that was overwhelmingly difficult to do you know just imagine there's this pretty girl that you like and you and you know you hardly know her at all but you got to call her up on the phone or go find her and say i have sinned by deceiving you would you please forgive me but again i was committed to walking with the lord i thought you know this is the right thing thing to do and that's what i did now funny story she hadn't even remembered that i told her this thing uh, she was like, yeah, I, I, whatever, you know, I, I forgive you, but I didn't even remember you told me that. But that process of me humbling myself, asking her for forgiveness, uh, experiencing sort of the shame of having to do that, the Lord used that quite profoundly. And I didn't want to, I, I don't think I ever lied to her ever again in my entire life. Realize that's what God can do in your life uh, through this act of confessing sin. Uh, again, you confess your sin to the Lord. Lord, I, I have sinned. Forgive me, forgive me for Jesus' sake. But if it's a sort of an interpersonal sin, I'd really encourage you, go to that person. Confess what you did was sin and ask them for forgiveness. You know, if you have lied, if you have been cruel to them, if you stole, obviously if you stole their stuff, uh, you know, in any of these ways, confess that sin. I think it's an act of humility. And what's God's promise? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I really believe that if you will humble yourself and seek forgiveness, God will give you grace to fight that sin even more. So let's keep going. I've reminded myself of the gospel. I've confessed this sin to the other person. But then you actively cultivate the corresponding uh, godly trait. So in our sort of model here, we're talking about cultivating truth-telling. What are some things that I could do to cultivate truth-telling? This is where I think meditation on Scripture is hugely important. Meditate on the fact that God is a God of truth, that he never lies, that the devil, on the other hand, is the father of lies. Therefore, for me, when I lie, I'm really being more like the devil than I am like my father in heaven. Memorize certain verses that correspond to telling truth. You know, maybe even this verse right here, verse 25, memorize that. Uh, You know, maybe identify a half a dozen 
specific scripture passages that correspond to the sins that you're fighting and the godly traits you're trying to cultivate and memorize those. It's, it, it's fascinating the way that God works through his word. Um, you know, this again is one of the things that we believe as evangelical Protestants, that God's word does not return void. God's word is what he uses to give us faith and to grow our faith. And the practice of scripture memory can have a profound impact on your life. So again, whatever sin it is, Maybe pick out a half a dozen scripture passages, memorize those, remind yourselves, uh, remind yourself of those regularly, and you'd be shocked over six months, a year, the fruit that that will bear in your life. Uh, and then maybe the last suggestion here: you got to give it time. Uh, you know, what, the metaphors that the Bible uses for the Christian life are often farming metaphors. You know, you plant your seeds and then you harvest them uh, four months later. Uh, you know, these, these long-term things. And you really need to look at growth and holiness that way. I think a lot of the times we get frustrated in growing in holiness because we want to go too quickly. We want to be changed overnight. And, you know, our fast food culture, our microwave culture doesn't help anything because, you know, you can throw a piece of pizza in the uh, microwave for 30 seconds and pull it out and it's all done. Uh, fight that mentality when it comes to the pursuit of holiness. You know, realize this is something that's going to take me years and years and years. Over time, I'll see growth. Over time, God will bear fruit. Over time, I will be a different person. But if I get impatient and if I take too short of a view and just look at the you know, next week or two, I'm going to get incredibly discouraged and frustrated and maybe even give up. So take a long-term view. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, James Boyce, he used to say this, Christians overestimate what they can do in six months. They underestimate what they can do in six years. I'd really encourage you to look at your Christian life that way. Don't overestimate what you're going to do in six months. Don't think like, you know, in six months I'm going to be as holy as uh, Jim Elliott or something like that. Don't look at it that way. But think over six years, I'm going to really get a grip on this anger problem or I'm really going to get a grip on this drinking problem or whatever. Um, and if, if you follow some of the steps that I laid out earlier, I really believe that God can work in your life quite profoundly. Now, if you want a book to read about this whole process of growing in holiness, putting sin to death, uh, my favorite book is Jerry Bridges' The Pursuit of Holiness. It's a short book. I actually read it twice in high school, so it's not, it's not super deep, and you, can, uh, you could use it with a youth group or something like that. But get yourself The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. It's probably the uh, shortest, simplest, clearest, most biblical summary of how to grow in godliness that I'm aware of. Uh, we actually bought a copy for every family in our church about 15 years ago. Um, and I think there's one in the church library. So if you want to check it out, you might uh, do that uh, when you come here sometime. Um, but that will give you a ton to chew on in this pursuit of holiness. Because real Christians want to grow in this area. Real Christians want to become more like Jesus. They want to put sin to death and cultivate godliness. But oftentimes we don't know how. And oftentimes we're, uh, you know, going about it in all the wrong ways. We've been confused by stuff on TV and by crazy things that we hear in funerals. And, you know, we're confused by false teaching. So if you want a really solid, clear, biblical understanding of how Christians grow and change, check out The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Uh, I think you'll find it helpful. Now, we'll conclude chapter 4 this, uh, with this study. I realize there's a lot here that we haven't touched on, um, but I do think that verses 25 through 32 are simply more and more examples of what I've been talking about here. You identify the sinful habit, you fight it in large part by cultivating the corresponding godly habit. But there's one verse here that kind of sticks out as a bit peculiar. 
If you look at verse 30, this seems to kind of come out of the blue. You know, if you look at, again, verse 25 through 32, it makes sense. He's got all these illustrations. Don't lie, tell the truth. Uh, don't be mean, uh, be kind. Uh, don't steal, instead work hard and give your, uh, be generous with your money. But then all of a sudden, out of, verse, out of nowhere comes verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I'm going to send you home today just sort of thinking on why is that there and how does that connect to the rest of this context? You know, especially because there doesn't seem to be sort of a corresponding godly habit. Uh, you know, you got the sinful habit, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but what's the, it, it, it doesn't appear at first glance to fit with what's going on. Uh, maybe in your devotions today or later on this week, think on what that verse is saying and more particularly how it connects to the overall context of putting off the old man and putting on the new. Uh, I'd love to hear your input, your feedback as to how you think that connects to what's going on here. Now, how might we pray this passage back to God? Obviously, many things to pray for. First, thank God that he saves us by grace, not by our works. Remind yourself of that all the time. We are saved not by our warring against sin, but by the blood of Jesus. But now that Jesus has saved us, we want to fight against sin. We want to war against sin. So thank God that he saves us by the blood of Jesus. But let's also pray specifically for the sins that beset us, that God would give us every grace to hate those sins, to fight those sins, and to cultivate the corresponding uh, trait of godliness. And again, be specific in your prayers. You know, if you struggle with anger, if you struggle with drinking too much, if you struggle with uh, being lazy, pray against that sin specifically and pray that God would help you correspond, uh, cultivate the corresponding godly trait. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and for its uh, simple practicality. How it's not this sort of esoteric book of philosophy, but you really lay out how we're to fight sin and how we're to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. And please help us all to do that. Lord, for any who don't yet know the Lord Jesus, we pray that they would be converted by your grace, that you'd make them alive by your Holy Spirit, that they would put their hope in Jesus. But then, Lord, help us to fight the old man, the old habits, the old character traits. Help us to hate those and to put those to death, but please help us to cultivate the corresponding godly traits and, and Lord, you know better than I do what these are in the lives of those who are listening. So if, if it's deception, if it's lying, if it's laziness, if it's hatred, if it's lust, if it's greed, whatever, help us, O oh Lord, by your Spirit to hate those and to cultivate godliness. And we do pray that you'd help us to take the long-term view, to see the next, um, the, the Christian life really in terms of decades and, and quarter centuries and not in uh, terms of weeks and months. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to change your people, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Help us to trust in that fact. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you have a great day.